Good morning, Minecrafters, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 6, Getting Unstuck, Releasing the Shame that Binds You. So last week, we talked about original worthiness, right? That feeling that we are born into this world with before any negative things, you know, shaming, crippling things from parents, other people in our lives, the media were said to us. And, you know, not that anyone wants the visual of, you know, kind of exiting, you know, mom's womb, entering the world all wet before they give you that nice first bath and wrap you up in a blanket. But, But picture that, that tiny little cherub, like kind of like we talked about last time, babies don't, don't have any issues. You know, they're born in the world issue free, you know, emotionally speaking. And before, you know, any, they're, you know, touched by the shame wand, you know, they just sort of automatically expect with full confidence to be loved and accepted. You know, like we talked about the, with the little toddler last week that came and sat on our blanket. They just, they just know right down to their bone marrow that they will be, you know, accepted with open arms and cared about. And we also explain what shame is, right? Because it's often confused with the guilt. And remember that healthy guilt, because guilt can, you know, take a wrong turn and go south too. If it's held on to for too long, that can become unhealthy as well. Um, But guilt, remember, is an action word. Guilt is, is there to keep us from doing bad things to people, right? Punching them in the schnoz, spreading vicious rumors at work or school, you know, whatever, um, and even that held on to for too long is bad. However, guilt is an actual word that says, I made a mistake, right? I made a mistake. Hopefully there's remorse, might even apologize, but I made a mistake. Whereas shame is, a shame has a message of I am the mistake. I am the mistake. We also had a little chat about John Bradshaw, uh, who was amazing. Uh, he He's written loads of books, and one of them is Healing the Shame that Binds You. And he we talk about this I am the mistake thing, right? Uh, John says that a person in their heads, right, we're talking about internal dialogue, says, I am a mistake. Everything I do is flawed and defective. The demonic potential of shame can lead to the most destructive emotional sickness of, of self a person can have. Internalized shame is like LDL, which is LDL cholesterol, which low-density lipoproteins, right? It is destructive, and if unchecked, if unchecked, can ultimately kill us. Internalized or toxic shame lethally disgraces us to the point where we have no limits or boundaries. With LDL shame, we are no longer perfectly imperfect. We are totally imperfect. In the last episode, you know, which is, I've said all, many talks that I've done as well, is that really shame is the single most excruciating emotion that a human being can feel. And it is the spiritual and equivalent um, of drinking turpentine for breakfast instead of orange juice, right? Or eating rat poison. This is what shame does to the spirit. You know, kind of like a computer is programmed in a certain way. We're walking around, you know, you know, for the most part, completely unconscious of why we're doing what we're doing, thinking what we're thinking. Of course, actually thoughts come first, then feeling what we're feeling, then doing what we're doing. And it's, it's kind of like 
you know, running life through a filter of shame, kind of like when we dump pasta or vegetables through a colander. We're walking around life like that and, and filtering things through to keep the shame, to reinforce all those early toxic messages that were said to us. And shame uh, also kicks in a series of defense mechanisms. And it's interesting because, you know, Freud gets such a bad rap. I would not say in any way that I would identify as a Freud fan, though at the same point, um, just because you know, much, much of his work has been outdated and things like that, um, I do have incredible respect for Freud because when he did the research he did, he did it at a time when, um, you know, it, it wasn't going to be accepted more than likely. Uh, he was Jewish at a time where it was very hard to be Jewish. That's one big reason, you know, back during the World War II era. And he also had obviously, you know, very limited resources, obviously no internet, no technology. Back then, uh, far fewer people were even literate, fewer books, you know, yada, yada, yada. So I certainly, I think it's important I say that to my students, not to throw out the baby with the bathwater, as they say, because he did an awful lot with not much. And I also want to say, though I, I actually made a joke in the, in the last one, because people talk about his, you know, cocaine usage and things. And I'd like to I like to correct that with my students before we go go on because this is also very applicable to what we're talking about today. Yes, he experimented both with cocaine, and here's the thing: for many of you who may not know, his intention was actually good. He was he suffered with depression himself. Family members who suffered with depression, he thought he was onto something, and you know tried to get his family to use it. Obviously, it went a bad route. But the thing is, what came out of that that was good is Freud started way back then to destigmatize mental illness because he realized by his tampering with cocaine that did make him feel better in the short term that mental illness isn't about uh, willpower and just, you know, choosing to snap out of it or get better. He sort of demonstrated way back then that there was a chemical or physiological or chemical and physiological component to depression, which I personally think is worth a lot. And, and it, once a child is, is shamed, and especially when they become, you know, shame-based, say an addicted family such as one I grow, grew up in, um, or dysfunctional family uh, of any sort, and the shame cycle kicks in, typically so do the defense mechanisms. Another thing that I think, uh, again, though much of Freud's work is is, um, you know, outdated and, you know, a lot of talk about he only researched, you know, a certain population of people, yada, yada, yada. You know, the high majority of that's all true. Another thing that people would probably keep, though, certainly his work with the unconscious. I don't know anyone who would dispute that. And his discovery of kind of the primary ego defenses or defense mechanisms, as we call them, even out in the world, out in the grocery store or whatever, People use the words defense mechanism, and that came from him. And also people might say, oh, you're projecting, all right? Well, that, that's a Freud word, and that's actually to this day um, still very true. Uh, John Bradshaw says, perhaps the most elementary ego defense is denial. In the face of threat, people deny what is going on, or they deny the hurt of what is going on, or the impact on their lives of what is going on. 
And one of the one of the first ones we'll talk about is denial, because the planet denial, as I like to say, is a very comfortable, safe place, at least for a while. We hang on to that too long, it becomes pathological. However, in the beginning, denial can really kind of um, give us time to catch catch our breath with whatever it is that happened. And really, the basis for this is a child's, uh, you know, desperate need for connection to the caregiving adult, right? We, even a baby instinctively knows, obviously they're not running the word through their head cognitively. They instinctively know that their very survival is dependent on that caregiving adult. Even if that caregiving adult is sick, um, you know, and, and, and deficient in the skills needed for parenting or caregiving, that child knows that they need you to live. We talked about John made reference to Robert Firestone, and he says that he has elaborated on um, Freud's, you know, the whole idea of denial. And he describes the most fundamental ego defense as the fantasy bond. To me, this seems very similar to Stockholm Syndrome, but it's a little different. The fantasy bond is an illusion of connectedness that your child creates in relation to the primary caregiver who is shaming her. Paradoxically, the more a child is violated, the more she creates the fantasy bond. Bonding to abuse is one of the most perplexing aspects of shame inducement. Abuse is usually unpredictable, a sort of random shock. Abuse lowers one's self-value and induces shame. As one loses more and more self-respect, one's world of choices and alternatives is diminished. Of course, a lot of this comes down to attachment or secure attachment, which is estimated to be about two-thirds of babies, which means the other third, obviously, are insecurely attached, which is kind of a bigger conversation. But for right now, we'll say that, you know, it comes out the good enough parent we talked about in a different episode is that um, when the parent is there the high majority of the time, doesn't mean you can't have a moment where it takes you a few extra seconds because you're fell asleep on the couch or, you know, got home late for work and you're crabby and snapped or whatever. But when that caregiving person is there, the high majority of the time, the child will be securely attached, know they can trust you, yada, yada, yada. Um, so, so John says that children must have secure attachment bonds. When they do not have such a bond, they create it. The fantasy bond is the illusion that someone is there for them. That's so accurate. The illusion that someone is there for them, someone who loves and protects them. Fantasy bond is like a mirage in the desert. Once set up, the denying fantasy functions automatically and unconsciously. Years later, when reality is no longer life-threatening, the fantasy bond remains. This explains why abandoned or abused children are described as having a compulsion to protect their parents. That is so spot-on accurate, John Bradshaw. Another thing um, we can do when we're, uh, when we're sort of exposed to shame early on and become shame-based is we can learn to numb out from our feelings. And John says, any intolerable event is signaled by strong emotions. Emotions are a form of energy emotion. They signal us of loss, a threat, or a situation. Sadness is about losing something we cherish. Anger and fear are our signal of actual or impending threats to our well-being. Joy signals that we are fulfilled and satisfied. Whenever a child is shamed through some form of abandonment, feelings of anger, hurt, 
and sadness arise. Since shame-based parents are shame-bound in all their emotions, they cannot tolerate their children's emotions. This is very important. This is so spot-on true. Therefore, they shame their children's emotions. When their emotions are shamed, children numb out. They don't feel their emotions. And this can go a million different bad, not a million, several levels of, of things can happen here that are not good, but we're going to keep going here. It's not clear exactly how the mechanism of numbing out works. It certainly has to do with tensing muscles, changing breathing patterns, and fantasizing abandonment. Once an emotion is toxically shame-bound, one feels numb. The emotional avoidance is sealed by learning to avoid the avoidance. And I'm sure many of you listening out there are very aware of this. Maybe people in your life, it might be you, who are walking around seemingly functioning. You know, they're going to work. They're, they're in relationships that more than likely aren't all that healthy. They're walking around, you know, numb, not feeling, not aware of what they're feeling at all. And of course, when people are used to not feeling, when they're, you know, kind of a window that opens up for that happens, often um, that's sort of the ideal moment to medicate that feeling, right? There's a whole lot of that going on in the States, I'll tell you that. A lot of self-medicating. Because if we don't also learn how to manage anger and, you know, these, you know, emotions, if we don't learn to handle our humanness, which is what we're talking about, right? We don't learn how to manage humanness when it kind of pops up, we're unfamiliar with it, afraid of it, um, and we feel the intensity of it. And then that's when we often, you know, drink down these feelings or, you know, shop down these feelings or, you know, have loads of unhealthy set, you know, whatever it is. But we, we medicate that feeling to make it go away because it's unfamiliar to us. It's unfamiliar to us and it's intense and we don't want it. Then, of course, as we mentioned earlier and also in the last episode, one of the most common sort of dynamics with shame is projection. And this goes back to what we said about it being the most toxic, most excruciating emotion a human being can feel, right? So numbing it out is one thing that happens, right? And also, you know, going the other route and kind of throwing it, throwing it against the wall, per se, Meaning the walls, you know, the people in our lives, even if those people are children. Uh, and remember that the Freudian defense mechanisms are unconscious. So when people are in this shame-based state and their behavior is toxic, they are not usually aware that they are projecting this onto their children or, or partners or whatever. It's just too much to take, too much to feel. They don't want it. So again, they throw it out. John Bradshaw says that once we are shame-based, projection is inevitable. Once we've disowned our feelings, wishes, needs, and drives, they clamor for expression. They are vital parts of ourselves. One way to handle them is to attribute them to others. If my own anger is disowned, I may project it onto you. I may ask you why you're angry. uh, Because when Susan Forward talks in her book about... um, I'm not reading from it. I'm just in my head right now. The godlike parent, right? Children, again, need parents for survival, regardless of where the parent is on the health spectrum, the mental health spectrum. They, you know, it's, it's just this inherent need, you know, to stay alive. And knowing that they, they stay alive, they need this, this person, even if this person is sick. And so they often 
kind of uh, develop this view of the parent as as godlike and omnipotent. Then he says a projection is used when repression fails. It is a major source of conflict and hostility in human relationships. Projection is the basis for children considering, considering their parents as omnipotent. This has me also feeling of a book I'm not going to share with you uh, today, but I would strongly consider reading Toxic Parents by Susan Forward um, if you haven't read that one yet. Any, any of you who are drawn to listening to these episodes about shame and toxic parenting and how this all happens, what it does to us, blah, 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 blah. Susan Forward is absolutely amazing. I actually um, discussed this book in my classes. She's done a whole lot with narcissistic injury, which is what we're talking about here. Um, so I would strongly encourage you to read those as well. Remember also that children, little toddlers, I think I'm two-year-olds right now, are are egocentric, right? Meaning centered around the ego, self-absorbed, because they're supposed to be. Not the same, you know, if that's a 40-year-old. They're supposed to be in that stage of, um, especially I'm thinking of a toddler too, of starting to, uh, they have this very secure, hopefully secure attachment, also learning that they are a separate self from the parent. This is very important. That's the stage for that, which is why when we're in a park or something and we see a two-year-old, let's say mom or dad or dad and dad are behind them and they kind of whip their little, you know, rebellious head around and they go toddling off, you know, 10 or 20 feet away. You know, I'm independent, I'm independent. And then you'll watch them look over their shoulder. I'm independent, but I'm making sure you're there. And there's a, a just a short excerpt from Christopher Morley's poem. It's called To a Child. And he, Christopher, he describes children as, he says, born comrade of bird, beast, and tree, and unselfconscious as the bee, elate explorer of each sense, without dismay, without pretense. So as far as this godlike thing that we do with our parents when we're little, right? We know we need them for survival. And also, um, you know, John says this animism, this, this omnipotence, which of course means all powerful view that the child's having the, uh, with his or her or their parents is about the child's egocentricity. He said they easily project this onto their parents. Parents are gods. They are omnipotent. They are all powerful. And he says such projected omnipotence is another way to understand the potential for shame in the parent-child mutual bond. Of course it is. Gods are perfect. It is an abusing transaction. And if an abusing transaction takes place in the parental relationship, it can't be the parent's problem. Why? Because God is perfect. God is perfect. Therefore, it must be my problem. It must be my fault. I'm the child. It must be the child's fault. And this is, of course, the basis for self-harm, all the different ways somebody can harm themselves, you know, with reckless choices to, you know, drag race up and over, you know, the top of the hill in the opposite lane with a 50-50 chance of, of, you know, getting killed, right? So it's that moment of very unconscious devaluing of the self. I'm not valued by, let's say, my mother, and, and it, again, not aware of this in that moment, um, even trying, you know, let's say heroin, there's got to be a millisecond of, of complete devalue of the self there. You know, reckless sex, same thing. We're not talking about teenagers doing teenage things and experimenting. We're talking about just dangerous, dangerous, could suffer and die from it behaviors, that there's got to be some deep, deep 
devaluing and turning against the self going on there. And I think of cutting. So, so what we're talking about is turning this aggression, you know, towards, you know, the abuser, the violator, the one, you know, abandoning us back towards us because it seems like the easiest thing to do. You know, this can also turn into um, injuring ourselves socially or financially. We can try to quote unquote rub ourselves out by destroying ourselves financially. And, and, you know, in, in the case of this, the rage of the offender is so fearful, John says, and shameful is turned against the self. And obviously the extreme of this, the extreme of this is rubbing ourselves out literally or suicide. And uh, obviously rather than protecting us from shame at a point, they actually, these, these dynamics preserve, encourage, and strengthen, strengthen the base of shame inside. So, you know, like when we're talking about denial and projection, you know, these Freudian unconscious defense mechanisms, remember when we're talking about defense, we're talking about protection, you know, initially. So initially, you know, the psyche, human spirit, however you want to say, the psyche is trying to protect itself, which works in the short term, right? In the short term, this seems like, you know, the, the, the most, you know, the easiest logical, you know, like life raft to grab. And in that moment, is saving us. It's when these obviously go on for for a while that they that they become very problematic and even pathological because we because we're unaware of them. They're unconscious. So this is where I I like to talk about um, how she manifests. But uh, you know, in, in the past when I've taught, I also teach I've also taught a course on trauma um, numerous times actually, and I I like to refer to these more as hiding places for shame because that's really what they are. I think of a tree fort or, you know, we live in Northern Vermont. So like, I'm thinking like the little, the, uh, the, the deer camp little kind of things that they have up in the trees that are all camouflaged because that's really what it's like. And often I see educated, put together professional adults having no idea, um, you know, why they're behaving in this way. And remember too, you know, that I'm not saying this in any kind of, any kind of slant because I was caught up in this for years. It takes a long time to work through shame. It takes courage and commitment um, because it is so poisonous. You know, it's just so so poisonous. And again, if somebody's shame based, remember that's their hard wiring. So it's very difficult. Think of the computer program is very difficult when we don't have that sort of duality present anymore. Where we can kind of you know look at ourselves from the outside looking in because when we're in the shame based mode. We, we're kind of like blind to it. I guess that's the best way to say, because we're in a shame fog. So we're not going to get it that we're doing what we're doing because we're doing it. And one of the ways it comes to the forefront is elitism. You know, many, many elitists, meaning that attitude, it doesn't certainly mean that, you know, obviously I don't use, you know, every, words like everyone, always everyone who's really wealthy, the 1%, the 10%, whatever, it doesn't mean that they're all based in shame because we're not talking about wealth necessarily. We're talking about elitism, which is different. That's an attitude of I am better than other people. So, so when somebody's, I'm just stereotypically too, because I'm not going to say all golfers are, you know, bad, bad shame-based people and actually being shame-based doesn't mean someone's a bad person, right? Stuff happened to them. So it's not what's wrong with them. It's what happened to them. Right? So often someone who's shame-based can, can go this route and they end up, you know, 
wearing their honor on the outside. So, and their self-esteem on the outside. So this is the person who's got all the bling bling going on. They're a member of, um, you know, I'm from New York. So right now it comes to mind is winged foot, this ultra, ultra prestigious golf course. that I don't even know how much it costs per year. And you have to kind of, you know, it's like pledging a frat or sorority just to get in. So you have to actually apply and go through all these hoops just to be able to spend, you know, $500,000 a year for the fee. Don't quote me on that one, but it's way up there. And I mean, what's that about? Think about that. Let's just knock it down to 200, 200 grand a year. That says a whole lot more than I like golf. You know, and that, you know, that person who's got to have the Armani suit, you know, or change that to somebody who's, you know, an identifying female, whatever, driving around in the Jaguar. And again, it doesn't mean everybody's driving around in these as an elitist. I think we all know what elitism looks like, right? And we know, we know how an elitist sounds, even when there's that um, ego trying to hide the ego where they're, you know, that I'm sure we've, we've all experienced that person who's falsely humble, falsely modest, because underneath it all is exactly what we're talking about. That shame based, you know, wearing it on the outside because on the inside, they feel the, the intensity and the emptiness, the emptiness and feeling of defective that shame brings. So they've got to kind of show how, you know, worthy they are on the outside with everything they have. Sort of going along with the elitism, you know, going kind of very much together is, is arrogance. And the reason I'm bringing up arrogance kind of separately from elitism, even though they, one flows into the other, most elitist people are very, very arrogant. It's part of the, you know, a part of the, the elitist persona, right? Though the arrogant person doesn't have to be an elitist necessarily. They can be arrogant about something else. And um, it is still the feeling of being better than other people, of course. And it maybe just might not to be, be to the extreme of the elitist and like the country club thing that we just talked about. And there are different ways. And the, you, the, most often they're not aware of it. Even when people say it to them, they'll laugh it off. Like, ha, 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 ha. It just kind of reinforces their arrogance, right? And actually, I remember, I think Oprah did it, my favorite, right? One of my closest friends, she just doesn't know. She did a show on this. I remember it was the whole show, but it came up in the show, like, I don't even know, 15, 20 years ago. People who are perpetually late, we're not talking about, you know, somebody can blow a tire or whatever, obviously, but that's person who's perpetually late just shows up, you know, 15 minutes after something started, you know, routinely. Often that is, you know, sort of demonstrating an underlying arrogance. Think about it, right? Because that person is perpetually late is letting everybody know around them that my time is more important than yours is. I value my time more important than I do yours. I am more important than you are, right? I am more important than you are. That's obvious arrogance. That is also often um, an outward, often not always, an outward expression of shame. And then we have the, you know, a lot of people like to say control freaks, right? Or those hungry for power. And this is often, not always, remember, I don't like to use polarized things. It doesn't mean all, everyone. However, this is very common when somebody's power hungry, right? And this is because uh, John Bradshaw says control is a way to ensure that no one can ever shame us again. It involves controlling our own thoughts, expressions, feelings, and actions and it involves attempting to control other people's thoughts, feelings, and actions. 
Control is the ultimate villain in destroying intimacy. We cannot share freely unless we are equal. When one person controls another, equality is ruptured. He says we need to control because our toxic shame drives, drives us outside ourselves. It's so true. We objectify ourselves and experience ourselves as lacking and defective. Therefore, he says, kind of like we have to move out of our own house. You know, and John then explains that, you know, this power hungry or sorry, control freak thing. We, people like to say that um, leads right into, you know, the sort of striving for power often. And uh, John says that the striving for power flows from the need to control. Achieving power is a direct attempt to compensate for the sense of being defective. Notice he didn't say feeling defective, right? Because somebody who's, we can all feel defective in shame. We're talking about being shame-based. Remember that it's become our core. So we have a sense of actually being defective as a person. And he says, when one has power over others, one becomes less vulnerable to being shamed. And, you know, this dynamic obviously happens. It can be politicians. It can be leaders of countries. Um, it can be, you know, and it can just be in a, in a, a corporation, the CEO or anybody in the middle area of management. This doesn't necessarily have an exact face. It doesn't have to be somebody up front in the limelight. This stuff goes on all over the place. Also, as a parent, this dynamic can be alive and well. And on a, in an extreme example, I would certainly think of, you know, the dynamic behind the, you know, the profile of a, of a, of a shooter. I'm thinking, this, you know, school shooters that have been almost, just almost become epidemic in the, in the States. They have a profile, you know, they're, 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 there's a very kind of basic persona and without question, without question, this is rooted in shame and feeling defective. If you know anything about the background of, of these young men, which is who they are, young men in their twenties. Right. But again, it doesn't have to be that extreme person. It can be somebody, you know, just, you know, working in a store that's a manager with, with this shame base, um, you know, and power addiction. Another super common hiding place for shame is criticism and, and blame. If, if you kind of know someone, or maybe it's you, but you're becoming aware, so make sure you are gentle with yourself if you're coming into that right now. People who are, you know, somebody will say, oh, so-and-so is so critical. You know, so-and-so is so critical, and that's become part of their persona where someone might actually describe them that way. Um, um, it, this is a very common way for shame to manifest. And John says, criticism and blame are perhaps the most common ways that shame is interpersonally transferred. If I feel put down and humiliated, I can reduce this feeling by criticizing and blaming someone else. As I go into detail about how another has failed, I get out my own shameful feeling, which obviously is mood altering, right? We're trying to elevate ourselves. This, if you think about it, this is basically what's going on with, you know, most bullies across the U.S. and world. This is the bully, right? From fifth grade, let's say fifth grade playground stuff, right up through the bully in the workplace. We're all very familiar with someone who needs to put someone else down in order to raise themselves up, right? So, so common. And not a huge step away from the, criti you know, the, the critical outlet, criticism of blame, is the rager. 
And we think about this um, with domestic violence, obviously, and it can also be anywhere in between. And, and uh, the critical thing and also rage can be highly addictive for sure. So you can actually, a person can become a rageaholic. And this is a hiding place, another tree fort for shame, like being critical is a tree fort for shame. And John says that rage is probably the most naturally occurring cover-up for shame. It comes close to being an actual primary ego defense. It would be, except for the fact that not all children rage. Some children will express, express rage when they are shamed. Others will suppress it and sometimes turn it in against themselves. So for the rager, you know, this can kind of, as an adult person, right, can become kind of a state of being, and it's meant to protect, you know, let's say him from, you know, further experiencing shame. Because remember, this, the shame thing is so excruciating. We will do anything as human beings to avoid it, anything we can do to avoid it. And so typically, John says, rage protects us in two ways, either by keeping others away or transferring the shame to others. People who have held their rage in often become bitter and sarcastic. They're not pleasant to be around. I'm so glad he touches base on the sarcasm thing because it fits here. It's another hiding place for shame. Sarcasm to most people isn't funny, right? And especially if they're trying to relay, you know, in, in part of their inherent the sarcasm is trying to relate usually some sort of, um, you know, snarky, you know, critical comment under the guise of something being funny. So it's just like a, a sneaky way to deliver someone's critique or, or judgment. And another very common, often more subtle hiding place or tree fort for shame. So, you know, right now in, in the midst of our fantastic discussion on shame, which is a big topic, and actually one of my favorites to discuss, even though the emotion itself is so excruciating, um, I also find it fascinating and even more fascinating uh, with how the healing happens, because absolutely we can learn to release this and, you know, live wonderfully free, healthy, happy lives. And I'm also realizing that I uh, know I try to keep these, you know, roughly around, you know, the half an hour mark or a little bit more than that. And we haven't even touched on some big ones, perfectionism and uh, some other parts to this. So we I'm thinking there's definitely a part two here, the patronizing and the contempt. And there's, again, perfectionism. I've, I've got a lot of that with, uh, you know, students are, are frequently talking about, um, you know, their need to strive, you know, to be perfect. And so that's has its roots in shame, let's say. So we are definitely going to have a part two. So and then you're probably thinking, you know, thinking, well, yeah, OK, well, how do I how do I? climb out of this. That's coming. This absolutely was phase one, which is awareness because we we can't do what we don't know, right? We cannot do what we don't know. So the awareness piece is what this phase is about, learning about the different hiding places or tree forts for shame. And then we will move to towards the recovery and discovery process. Um, and then also uh, as well as how to rewire the brain towards more um, positive dialogue. And basically with shame, how to reboot. And that's what we're talking about. Because anybody who's shame-based, which is even, you know, the f more extreme, right, which is a lot of us, shame-based need, need a reboot. And so the next episode, we're going to touch on the remainder of the tree forts and then how to move from awareness towards recovery. And on this note, 
On this note, I will thank all of you for listening, all the Minecrafters out there across the United States and world. And today I'm, fe- I'm feeling it for Peru. So I'd like to do a big shout out. Thank you to Peru. So muchas gracias, Peru. And on that note, this is Kimberly Quinn signing off from Northern Vermont. Have a mindful day.